I've never been called to be a witness in court, but I've watched TV. So I think I have a pretty good idea. I mean, because you learn everything on TV, right? I mean, being a police officer is just like being a police officer on TV, I'm sure. And being in court is just like being in a court on TV. Uh, a, a witness, from what I understand, has two main jobs. They're to tell the truth. And, of course, on TV it's the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Uh, and you're to say what you have seen or what you know to be true, right? You can't tell what you've heard, not hearsay. You, you can only say what you have seen with your own eyes, what you, you know to be true. Think about it. In the end, that's all disciples of Jesus are called to be when we're called to be witnesses for God. Right? We're to tell the truth. Right? God doesn't need us to change His message. He doesn't need us to alter it, to water it down, to adjust it, to obscure certain truths. He doesn't need us to change it at all, but just to tell the truth, the whole truth. Nothing but the truth, so help us God. And then God, we're told to, to do what we, to say what we know to be true and what we have seen. We talked last week about not speculating, but even beyond that, what we know to be true. Have you had prayers answered? Then you know that to be true and you can share that as God's witness. God answers prayer because He's done this and this for me. Does God change lives? Has He changed your life? Has He seen, have you seen Him change somebody else's? Then you can testify to that because you know it's true. Have you seen someone comforted, broken hearts healed? If so, then you can testify to those things because you know they are true. Now we see this idea of being a witness in this way from the Gospels. Uh, the Gospels tell us a story about a man possessed with legions of demons. He is on the shore. Of the, he meets Jesus on the shore of the Gadarenes. He runs up to Jesus. Jesus casts the demons out of the man. And when Jesus goes to leave the region, the man says, I, I want to go with you. And Jesus said, no, you, you can't. Here's what I want you to do instead. Go tell your family and friends what great things the Lord has done for you. Now, that's, that's pretty powerful and basic. Right? He wasn't called to go argue the fine points of theology. He wasn't called to go and speculate on things. He, he was called to go and be a witness. Here's what I have seen. Here's what I know to be true. And later the Bible tells us that when, when Jesus came back to that region, there were crowds waiting on Him. Why were the crowds waiting in that region? Well, I don't know if it tells us specifically, but I believe... It's because of the witness of this man who just went out and told what good things God has done for him. As disciples of Jesus, we are all called to be God's witnesses, just as the man of the Gadarenes was. And we're told, what, uh, and we're told to go out and just tell what we know and to tell the truth. What we're going to do today is look at two witnesses from the period of Revelation, from the period of the end. And we're going to learn how to be faithful witnesses for God in this time. So open your Bible to Revelation 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. Uh, it should be on page 955 in your pew Bible. But if you turn back and you hit the concordance or the maps, you've gone too far. So I ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Revelation 11, 1 through 14. Then there was giving to me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar. And those who worship in it leave out the courtyard, which is outside the temple and do not measure it because it has been given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouths and devours their enemies. And so, if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain, that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie on the street in the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not allow their bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who live on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented those who lived on the earth. 
And after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon all who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that time, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Title of the message this morning is being God's witness. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You are wonderful, worthy. Father, we want to be faithful witnesses for you. We want to do your will. We want to stand and declare, thus saith the word of God. And, and not waffle and not waver and not water it down. And be clear in our voices, clear in our intentions. So today as we look at your word, we look at these two witnesses and what they did and how they did it. Let us learn what we need to learn from them so we can emulate them in our day. Father, we, we need you. There is a, a lack of witnesses to the power and the glory and the majesty of our God. The gospel is being altered and watered down in many ways. Other things are replacing it in our culture. People professing faith in Jesus are denying Jesus with their actions, denying him by the things they teach. Uh, and we need you. We need you to make us witnesses that we will stand and we will tell the truth. So help us, God. Give us boldness. Give us an understanding mind to have clarity on, on what the word means. Let your spirit empower us so that when we speak, you would speak the things you had once said. And your word would be, like it says in Isaiah, it would, it would go forth and it would accomplish that for which you've sent it. Make us your witnesses. Make us faithful to the end. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're still in between the sixth and seventh trumpet. And we're given another vision. We saw a vision last week in Revelation 10. Revelation 11, we're given two actual visions, two different events that happen in this these 14 passages. The first is the temple and John being sent to measure it. Now, John's that part of the vision, verses 1 and 2, is very, very similar to a vision from Zechariah 2, verses 1 through 5. Zechariah sees a man going to measure Jerusalem. The point of the measuring of Jerusalem in Zechariah was symbolic of God's protection of his people. Now, given the fact John uses Zechariah several times throughout this chapter, I think... The measuring of the courtyard here is the same thing. God is going to protect his people. And we see in verses 5 and 6 that God does protect these two witnesses. So I think that's the same point. There's this: The temple is somewhat symbolic of the people of God. And the measuring is marking them out. And God is protecting them. But notice in verse 2 that the courtyard is outside the temple. And John is told not to measure it because it has been given... To the nations to trample it for 42 months. Now there's a lot here um, to understand. We don't have time for all of it. But just one thing. Just to remember the sovereignty of God. Nothing that happens in Revelation is just happening. Nothing that happens is just circumstance and chance. It's always a sovereign God. Why are the nations trampling the holy city, the courtyard? Because it was given to them by God. Right? God allowed that to happen. Second, notice the, the 42 months. 42 months is right about three and a half years. So this seems to be a reference to the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. The tribulation period, as I understand it, is broke up into two phases. There's the three and a half period of the tribulation, and then the last three and a half period of the great tribulation. Uh, and I believe what we see here is happening in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. The court being trampled during this period seems to be a reference to the war the beast makes with the people of God. As he wages war against them, goes throughout all of the earth to try to have them killed. So that's the first vision. Second vision is of the two witnesses. Now, many questions surround these two witnesses. When does this take place? Again, 
There are any commentary or lots of commentaries will have different opinions. Some say during the last half, some say during the first half. I tend to lead toward it happening during the first half of the tribulation. Uh, to me, their death, their resurrection, their ascension happening at the end of this part of our text today seems to fit well with this is the end of the tribulation. Now the third woe, the great tribulation is coming. Uh, the seventh the seventh trumpet, I believe, is this third woe, and I believe it is the, the start of the great tribulation. So what I believe happens here is they arise early in the days of the tribulation period. They preach what God is going to do, what is going to happen. God protects them for three and a half years because notice they're going to do it for 1,260 days, which is roughly three, three and a half years. Then they're going to die. Everybody's just going to sit and look at them. They're going to rise to heaven. And then the chapter goes on and the next woe comes. So I believe that's what happens. That's what makes sense to me. Another question is who are they? This is probably one of the bigger questions. Who are they? And there's lots of ideas. right? Enoch and Elijah is, is one of the big ideas. Uh, you think, why Enoch and Elijah? Well, Enoch and Elijah, because how did Enoch and Elijah die? Well, according to God's word, we don't ever see what they did, do we? Enoch walked with God and then was not because God took him. Elijah was taken up by a whirlwind and other prophets went to look for his body, but they couldn't find it. Now, the reason people say it's Enoch and Elijah because of that is Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die and then judgment. So these two, Enoch and Elijah, they have not died. They come, they preach for this three and a half years, then they die. And then they're taken up. And so that would be that. Others say maybe it's Moses and Elijah. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, when Jesus was transfigured in the Gospels, who, what two Old Testament people appeared to him? Moses and Elijah. What are the miracles these two prophets do? They call down fire from heaven. They have the power to shut up the sky. That, that's very Elijah-ish. And then they have the power to cause the waters to turn to blood and to strike the earth with every plague. Very much sounds like Moses uh, at this point. And so it could be Moses and Elijah. Then again, it could just be two guys. Jesus raises up in the last days to be his witnesses. And they come in the spirit and the power of Elijah and Moses, just as John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So it's rather than it being either any of those four, it's just two disciples of Jesus. God raises up in the end times and gives them this power. So who is it? Which one of those is it? Well, we're not given an explicit answer, so I don't really know. Choose what you will and go with it. Uh, but what we do know is what they did. And what they did was serve as God's witnesses during a time when the world was very, very falling apart and very, very against Christianity. Now, we haven't got there yet, not to really look at it. We've seen hints at it in previous chapters, the altars under the soul and all uh, the, the souls under the altar and all of that. When we get to Revelation 13, we're really going to get into seeing the beast make war with the, with the people of God. And, and this happens in kind of all of this time. And so as the beast rises to power and begins to make war with the disciples of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus fight back. But they don't fight back with physical weapons. They fight back with spiritual weapons. They don't fight back by forming an army and holding actual weapons. They fight back with bold witness toward the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's how they fight the evil and the injustice of the, the kingdom the beast is creating. Now, these two witnesses, I believe, while they are two literal men, I do believe they are two people at the end times. I also believe in some ways they give us a representation of what all the disciples of Jesus during this end time are doing. These two witnesses... They're in Jerusalem, boldly testifying the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, what we know from other parts in Revelation, the rest of the disciples of Jesus are in all parts of the world, and they're doing exactly the same thing. 
They are going out and they are boldly witnessing for God, telling the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, what they're doing is fighting against the agenda of the beast. Who Remember, he wants to be worshipped as God. He wants to force people to take the mark as an act of worship and devotion to him. And what they're proclaiming is, don't do that. Worship Jesus instead. And so this becomes a powerful lesson for us. That we may not be living in the same sort of end times as we see in Revelation 11. But, 1 John 5.19 still tells us the whole world is under the power of the evil one. And there could be something within us to say, oh, the whole world under the power of the evil one. Look at the news. Look at social media. I mean, look at what's popular. The world is, I mean, there's, I don't have to give a, a really solid apologetic about the world being under the sway of the evil one. All we have to do is, here's what the Bible says is right, and look at what the world says is right. Here's what the Bible says is holiness, and look what the world says is holiness. Here's what the Bible says about sexuality. Here's what the world says about sexuality. Here's what the Bible says about what is the value of life, and here's what the world says about the value of life. The world, the world is the very best apologetic to the reality of 1 John 5 and 19. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So how do we fight against that? Well, not with physical weapons, not with worldly weapons, not with carnal weapons. Our weapons are spiritual, mighty through God, to the knocking down of strongholds, bringing thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Well, where do you find weapons like that? In the Word of God and in the testimony of Jesus Christ. So our key truth for today is God's witnesses push back against evil by boldly proclaiming the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. From the example of these two witnesses, we see four principles for pushing back against evil by boldly proclaiming the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. First, speak God's word with God's heart. We're told in verse 3, they prophesy for three and a half years. Now, think about, they're called prophets at one point. Think about how the prophets in the Old Testament went about doing things. What did they do? They, they went and they said, thus says the Lord. Right? When a prophet went, he went with a message from God. He didn't have his own ideas, his own opinions, his own agendas. He had what God wanted him to say. This is what they're doing. Right? They are not calling on people in anything worldly. They are saying, thus says the word of God. Now, we're not told again explicitly what their message was. But if we understand them as the Old Testament type prophets, we can have a good idea of what they were probably saying. They were probably saying, here's what the Bible says. Here's what you're doing. Stop and repent. Right? He is, they, they are almost certainly preaching the Word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, and urging people to repent. They're telling them, if you don't, this is what's going to happen. They are probably pointing to the events that are happening, the catastrophes, and saying, this is the judgment of Almighty God. Repent so you can be spared. This is what Old Testament prophets did. This, I believe, is what they did. And I believe they did it to such an extent that the people despised them for it. Look at verse 10. At the end, it says, these two prophets tormented those who lived on the earth. Now, how did they torment them? They didn't torment them with any sort of physical pain. Right? It wasn't like they tied people down and stabbed them with knives or things like that. They tormented them with the word of God. And the testimony of Jesus Christ. The world said, embrace the beast. Embrace his kingdom. Embrace his ideals. Embrace his morality. And they said, no. This is anti-Christ. This is against God. The word of God says this. Repent of this evil. And you know, if you've ever lived in rebellion against God, somebody telling you, thus says the word of God, 
that goes against your sin and your rebellion, that, that feels like torment, doesn't it? It feels like persecution. And that's how the world is going to feel. The world is going to feel they are tormenting us. They are hate-speeching us. They are being mean to us. And so they torment through preaching the Word of God through the testimony of Jesus Christ. As we seek to push back against the evil of our day, we do it by boldly proclaiming the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. We, we follow this example. We must be sure we're speaking God's Word, right? Because a witness tells the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Ultimate truth is found here. Right? Not, not in our opinions, not in our preferences, not in our convictions, not in our politics, but in thus says the Word of God. Testifying, speaking forth the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ it is not the time to talk politics or non-eternal secondary issues. This is the time where we stick to this is what the word of God says. This, this is how we push back against evil. Through the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I don't have a lot of time to get into it, but when you, you look at the life of Jesus, he went preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And the gospel of the kingdom was a gospel about the kingdom of God coming. Well, what happens when God's kingdom comes? Things change. The sick are healed. There's the, the, where there's a lack, Jesus multiplies food and there's food. The kingdom of God changes things when it comes. So how do we push back against the evil of the day? With the, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Because what's going to change a culture... It's not It's not in politics. It's not in our, our railing and yelling and hollering about our opinions. It's when people embrace Jesus. They hear the Word of God. They believe the Word of God. They repent of their sins. They receive Christ as their Savior. The, the world is different then. Their morality changes. Their attitudes change. Their values change. So we, we push back the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. But also notice how they were clothed at the end of verse 3. They were clothed in, in sackcloth. You know, what, what is the point of sackcloth in the Old Testament? It's always a sign of mourning. I, I do not know of one single instance in God's Word where someone wore sackcloth and it wasn't a, a show of sorrow. The sorrow may have been over personal tragedy. It may have been over personal sin. It may have been over the corporate sin of their nation. It may have been over the impending judgment that was coming. Or it may have been some variation of all of those. But it was always about mourning. And so in this instance, this sorrow they have in wearing the sackcloth, it's probably for the sin of the people. Their rejection of Jesus and the impending judgment they know is coming. What a, I mean, what a, what a great picture of what our hearts should be. We, if you were here Wednesday night or if you watched the sermon online, we talked about this. The psalmist, Psalm 119, 136, he, his eyes leaped because of the sin of the people. Jeremiah wished his eyes were a fountain of tears that could run day and night for the sins of his people. Why did they weep? They wept. Because God's name was being blasphemed. They wept because the people were going to face the judgment of God. They, they wept because people were suffering in the moment because of their sin. And that is probably what's going on here. And that is to be our example as well. When we look at the culture that mocks the idea of God... Salvation and sin and minimizes the cross. Our hearts should ache over that. When we see people giving their worship and their devotion to created things that, that are not worthy of their worship and devotion, rather than to the glorious God who is worthy, our, our hearts should ache over that. When we see people in their rebellion against God and we know the future, not the immediate future, but the coming future. This is the future. Judgment is coming. And we know what our hearts ought to ache at the fact they are going to die and go to hell lest they repent and believe in Jesus Christ. 
And then as we look and we see people destroying their lives and they're suffering because of sin they have committed. They are reaping what they have sown. Rather than sitting back in judgment and going, they get what they deserve. Our hearts should ache. Jeremiah looked at the people dying because of what they had done. And he wished his eyes could just stop, never stop running. This is how we are to be witnesses for God. We speak God's word with God's heart. There's a story that the fellow who was preaching when I was unanswered the call to preach told. There was a, an evangelist and he was more of just like a personal evangelist. He's a devoted disciple of Jesus and he was a, a one-legged guy. And his name was Hop or they called him Hop. They called him Hop because he was a one-legged guy who hopped everywhere he went. But he was a devoted disciple of Jesus determined to reach everybody he could for Jesus and to share the gospel with him. And one night he saw a guy they'd been trying to reach. And the guy saw Hop and knew what he wanted. So he turned and walked away and Hop hopped after him, screaming his name. And the guy ignored him. And of course he could outrun Hop because he had two legs. And when Hop saw he wasn't going to be able to catch the guy, he stopped at a telephone pole or a light pole and he laid his head on it. And he began to, to weep loudly. And the man heard the cry. And he went back. And he told him, he said, I, I could outrun your leg, but I couldn't outrun your tears. You know, the old cliche says people don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. There, there's some truth in that. There is some truth in people needing to know why we're speaking God's word with them. Because we're passionate about God's glory. That, that matters. Because we're concerned about their eternal souls. That That matters. Because we're concerned about what's coming. They're, they're going to reap what they're sowing. Our hearts should ache and our eyes should leak as we share God's word and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And if we are going to push back against evil by boldly proclaiming the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, then we must speak God's word. and We must speak it with God's heart. Secondly, Speak God's word with God's power. Verse 4. These are described as the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. The lampstand olive image is taken from Zechariah 4. In Zechariah 4, the point in part was God was in charge of rebuilding the temple. And His Spirit would be on Zerubbabel to ensure it was completed. By overcoming all opposition. The point here seems to be similar. Notice what we're told about these two men. These two witnesses. They stand before the Lord of all the earth. Fire flows from their mouths. They have power in verse 6 to shut up the sky. To make the water into blood. And to strike the earth with every plague as they desire. The point of this is God is with them. God will protect them. God will empower them until they have completed the task. They, they will be able to, to preach and to prophesy and to speak God's word and the testimony of Jesus Christ until the time is done because God is with them, because God will protect them, because God will empower them. And in this picture of God uh, of going with God and His power is important because their message is wildly unpopular. So unpopular that the people see it as being tormented, but not only do they see it as being tormented, that people will come to kill them. And as they prophesy, as they speak God's Word and the testimony of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, the world at large will hate the message to such an extent People will come and try to kill them. But these attempts to kill them will fail because God is with them. God is protecting them. And God is empowering them. Now, the way God protects them and empowers them is unique, to say the least. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So anyone who wants to harm them must be killed in this way. That, that's pretty unique. It's pretty significant. Now, 
I was thinking about this. I don't think this means they're like bright dragon breath, right? I don't think they just like fire shoots out. I think instead people come to harm them and they pray and fire falls from heaven. This kind of would fit with the Elijah motive, uh, motif they have going on here. Elijah, Second Kings 1, somebody comes to get him. Elijah says, if I am a prophet of God, may fire fall down from heaven and devour you. And it does. And so I think that's what we see here. Rather than dragon breath, they pray, fire falls down, God does it. They, they also have, this, of course, these miracles, these great miracles to do all of these things. Um, very similar to Moses and Elijah. And, and, and in Moses and Elijah's life, these, these miracles, this power was to demonstrate God was with them. God was protecting them and God was empowering them. If we are going to be God's witnesses, we also need to be sure God is with us. God is protecting us. God is empowering us. We, we need these things with us to stand boldly, proclaim the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ just as much as they will. Now, that being said, it seems highly unlikely we're going to call fire down from heaven or strike the earth with plagues and blood and all of these kinds of things. Um, the Bible doesn't promise us that, but the Bible does promise us power to be witnesses. Behold, I'm saying the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city till you're clothed. Power from on high. This is Luke's gospel. Uh, after Jesus has risen from the dead, he's about to lead them to the Mount of Olives and ascend back into heaven. And he tells them to wait until the promise that he has been telling them about since he started his ministry it's going to come upon them. This, of course, is going to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. They will be spirit-filled and spirit-empowered, and they will be able to, to go and do what God wants them to do. Now, I, I love the picture of being clothed with power from on high. That The picture of the Holy Spirit covering us like clothing and enabling us to powerfully and effectively witness for Jesus. To, to proclaim the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. This, this is promised to us. I mean, it's not just for the apostles, it's for us too. We are promised the power of the Spirit as we seek to be witnesses. Acts 1.8 says that when, that we will be His witnesses, and as we do, the Holy Spirit will empower us. The, the, the promise is there. The need is for us to go and take advantage of that. And the reason we have to have this is because humans are naturally resistant to the message of the gospel. They either find it foolish or they find it to be a stumbling block. And, and you and I, in our power, we can't overcome natural human resistance to the message of the word of God or the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, what we can do in our own strength and power is we can alter the message where sinners and rebels can accept it. We can water the message down where it's not a stumbling block or it's not offensive to rebels and to sinners. But doing so doesn't overcome their objections. Instead, we empty the gospel of its power and we leave them doomed in their sins, but we tell them they're actually okay. Right? Anytime we alter the message in any way, we don't make it better. We empty it of its power. And so... In order to effectively witness the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, we must have the Holy Spirit's power upon us because only the Holy Spirit can overcome their resistance. Only the Holy Spirit can cause a, a, a spiritually dead person to come to life in Christ. Only the Holy Spirit can make someone be born again, regenerate them, convict them of their sin, shine the light of the gospel into their eyes. Whatever terms we find in the Bible we want to use, only the Holy Spirit does that, can do that. We, we must have the Holy Spirit. Without this, we are unable to be faithful witnesses for God. We, we, do not, we cannot faithfully proclaim the Word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. So if we're going to faithfully be God's witness and push back against evil by boldly proclaiming the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, we must speak God's Word with God's power. We must seek and surrender to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Third, we must speak God's word no matter what. These people are going to, these, these witnesses are going to speak God's word and the testimony of Jesus Christ and, and, and hack the world off. The world, the whole world is going to be angry. 
at them for three and a half years. And then finally, the beast in verse 7 that comes up out of the abyss, which we'll see that in Revelation 13. He will make war with them, and he will overcome them, and he will kill them. And then their dead bodies will lie in the street for three and a half days. Verse 9, peoples and tribes and languages, basically the whole world is going to to see their dead bodies. So it's going to be like a, a massive news event. CNN and MSNBC and Fox News are all going to just live stream these dead bodies laying there 24 hours a day, seven or 24 hours a day for three and a half days. The whole world will see it. They're they're going to make sure nobody can can kind of help them, right? They're going, they're not going to be able to be laid in a tomb. Their bodies are going to lay there. Um, in, in an essence, that's kind of a way to desecrate the body, to desecrate the people. And then not only that, but those who live on the earth who see it are going to rejoice and celebrate. Right? So the whole earth has seen their witness. And the whole earth is angry at their witness. And then finally the beast is going to kill them. And when the beast kills them, the whole world is going to see it. And they're going to watch their bodies lay for three and a half days. And as they do, they're going to celebrate. And they're going to give each other gifts. It's going to be like Christmas time. Give each other gifts and presents and celebrate the death of these two people who had tormented them with the the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, again, with this, this is an important thing to understand. It is not going to be popular to to share the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's, It's not popular. I mean, it's going to be wildly unpopular then. To the point of death. And it's not there where we are now. But make no mistake. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Is pretty wildly unpopular in our day. I mean. If you say thus says the word of God. Jesus died for sin. And that's the only path to salvation. He legitimately rose from the dead. The world at large isn't going to be okay with that. And and we have to understand that. We have to understand that and be willing to speak God's word no matter what. Because we're witnesses. And the Greek word most commonly used for witness in the New Testament is where our English word for martyr comes from. And until the second or third century... It didn't have any connotation of death at all. It just meant to witness. So why did it become death? Because people, disciples of Jesus, witnessed about Jesus. And they died because of it. And it became such a a tie that if you witnessed about Jesus, you might die that the word martyr took on the meaning of someone who died for Jesus. To witness for Jesus was to die for Jesus. As God's witnesses, we must be committed to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ no matter what. Even when this is costly and dangerous. And Jesus actually calls us to that kind of witness. Look at what it says. Jesus says... The day will come when you'll be hated by by all, not some, all, because of my name. The one who endured to the end who will be saved. I don't have time to get into that, but what happens to the one who doesn't endure? And I'll just leave you with that question to work through. But notice what he goes on to say. But whatever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel till the Son of Man comes. So... Picture this. You go and you witness the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, and you're hated by everybody in the community. And they rise up against you. And they begin to persecute you for this witness about Jesus. What do you do? Well, the natural answer is, well, I, I go home. I tried. It was hard. Scary hard. And it wasn't safe. So I'm done. But that's not what he says, is it? He says you go, you leave. And you go to another city and you do it again. And the implication, you will not finish going through the cities. So it's not just you do it once and you go to another city and it's like, oh, same thing happened. I guess I'm done this. I'm not, I'm not good at this witness thing. Everybody just hates me. 
No, you, you go from here, and then you go to the next one, and you go to the next one, and you do that until they either kill you or until Jesus comes back. That, that's what we're called to. That's the kind of witnesses we are called to be. I mean, that, that seems to be a pretty radical path. Most of the time, we only want to do what's easy. We want to do... I mean, it's easy to testify, to witness the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ in here. Everybody agrees with me, for the most part. But out there, out there, it's not the same. But what do we do? We do it anyway. And what do they do when they reject us? We, we do it again. Right? I mean, and there's so many ways this would have to be lived out in our lives. Right? We share the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ with someone, and they reject it. What do we do? We go to someone else and we do it all over again. And if they reject it, we go to someone else and we do it all over again. And we just do it over and over and over and over and over until we've gone to everybody or Jesus comes back or they kill us. We're sharing the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ with someone. And they say, well, I'm gay. Is, is homosexuality a sin? What do we do? We faithfully share the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. The Bible says Absolutely, that's a sin. Or we go to someone and we share with them the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and they say, are you saying if I don't believe in your Jesus, I'm going to go to hell despite being a good moral person? What do we say? We speak the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's in fact. That is in fact what it says. That's what Jesus Himself sees. We speak the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ no matter what. That's required if we're going to try to push back against the evil of the day. Because silent witnesses push back against nothing. We have to speak the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ no matter what. And then finally, we we speak God's Word in hope. Notice what we're told in verse 7. When they had finished their testimony, then they're killed. So, they finished. They did everything God intended for them to do, and then God allowed them to die. That's kind of a strange thought, right? I mean, the beast didn't overcome God's protection, did he? God allowed it. They had done all that God wanted them to do, and then God allowed them to die, and they went to heaven. Now, With this, let me say this quickly. When they got to heaven, they weren't like, whoa, what happened? You let this dude kill us. I didn't think that was supposed to happen. They didn't feel in any way cheated. They were like, we did what God wanted us to do. Now we're here with Jesus. This is the best thing ever. Right? An idea that God would allow them to die and that they would feel cheated or if God would allow us to die and we would feel cheated shows we really don't understand who God is and what God has done for us. But that's not the point. So they... They are essentially, they are immortal until God is done with them. Which George Whitfield made a similar statement. We are immortal until our work on earth is done. That's a hopeful thought. God has something for us to do. And if I really believed that God was going to make sure I finished the work he had for me, how, how death-defying obedience would I have, right? Because they're not going to kill me and they're not going to stop me. Until God's through with me. And if God's through with me, I'm going to be with Him anyway, so woohoo, I win. I mean, I, I win no matter what. And, and that's the idea I want us to understand here. We, we should go in hope because no matter what, we, we win. Right? So the beast, he kills them. And they, the people rejoice and they celebrate over their dead bodies, but the world is shocked when they, the Spirit of God, the breath of God comes into them. They stand up on their feet and fear falls upon all who are watching. Imagine, imagine what happens on CNN and Fox News when the dead person they're watching stands up. And then a voice says, come up here. And they go, the world is terrified by what happens. Then, not only that, there is an earthquake in Jerusalem where they were killed. And 7,000 people die as a result of the earthquake. And here's the part I want us to focus on next. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So, So here's the deal. 
the Antichrist doesn't win in any part of this story. He, he doesn't win by killing them because they had done everything God wanted them to do. Their task on earth was done. All the Antichrist did was fulfill God's plan to bring them to stop. Then as they lay dead and the world rejoiced, the Antichrist doesn't win because God raises them back to life. And the whole world sees it. So the Antichrist doesn't win. And then they're taken up to heaven. And it looks like the Antichrist wins because their gospel's not going out anymore. And, and, and the rest of the people who didn't die were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And I'm going to tell you what I believe about this. I believe this is a testimony of their salvation. I believe this became a moment of truth for people who were there. I mean, these people, right? They, they're, the fire's coming down. They're doing these things. It's clearly not normal. They die. They rise from the dead. Clearly not normal. The, the voice come up here. They rise. Not normal. So the people who were there, they see it. And I believe they repent and they believe and are saved. And let me explain why I think this. Within the book of Revelation, people fearing God and giving glory to God is always a sign of genuine repentance and salvation. Look at Revelation 14, 6 and 7. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with the eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And notice what response he tells them to have. Fear God and give him glory. So he's preaching the gospel and he's telling people how to respond to the gospel. And the response of the gospel is to fear God and give him glory. Very similar language. This According to this angel is the appropriate response to the gospel. A saving response to the gospel. Now look at Revelation 15 and 4. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? If you alone are holy, all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Now look at chapter 16. Hold it here and look at chapter 16 and verse 9. And the people were scorched with a fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. They did not repent to give him glory. So in, in Revelation 15 and 4, and then 16, 9, a lack of fearing God and a lack of giving God glory is seen as a refusal to repent. Now look at Revelation 19 and 5. Well, I guess you could say... If not giving God glory and not fearing God is a sign of a refusal to repent, then it would be fair to say that giving God glory and fearing God would be a sign of repentance. Now look at Revelation 19 and 5. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants. Now notice who are the bondservants of God. You who fear him, small and great. The bondservants of God fear God and they give him praise. So I think in, in the, within the context of Revelation particularly, it seems safe to conclude fearing God, giving him glory is a sign of genuine repentance and salvation. And so what we see here is the Antichrist doesn't win when he kills them because their task on earth was complete. The Antichrist doesn't win when, he, when they lay dead because God raises them from the dead and takes them to be with him. And the Antichrist doesn't win because in their death and in their resurrection, more were saved there than were probably saved during the time of their ministry. The, the lesson for us is to speak God's word and hope. Because the enemy can't win. The enemy can't win when we speak the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. If he kills us, we go to be with Jesus and we finished our task on earth. He didn't win. 
we are going to be raised on the last day, he does not win. What does our testimony do that we were faithful unto the end to proclaim the word of God? Who does that influence? What seeds have we planted that stay there and eventually bear fruit? The enemy cannot win as long as we speak the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Here's how the enemy wins. If we keep silent. He doesn't have to kill us. We've planted no seeds. He wins. Speak the word of God in hope. Nothing can happen to you outside of God's will. And if it is that time you are finished your task on earth, if I have finished my task on earth, God will take me. But I go to be with him to live as Christ to die as gain. That death is not final because the spirit of God will, the breath of God will come in on the last day and my body will rise and I will meet the Lord in the air. And the enemy does not win. And the seeds I have planted continue to be planted and cannot be uprooted by the enemy. And who knows what my death could do. The old saying is the blood of martyrs is the the seed of the gospel. It's the water of the gospel. In places where Christianity is persecuted and Christians are killed, the gospel thrives. Speak the word in hope Because the enemy cannot win when we speak God's word. He only wins when we stay silent. If we are to be God's witnesses and push back against evil, we must boldly proclaim the word of God and we must speak it in hope. We must believe. So as we come to a time of response, last week and this week, the response is essentially the same. Some may need to embrace the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. You may need to repent of your sins and believe in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for you. And others, if you have already repented, if we have already believed, we know people who haven't. And our job now is to go be witnesses for Christ who testify to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. We need to identify those people. We need to picture them in our minds. We need to pray for them today. And then we may need to make a definite plan to go and talk to them. Our talking to them, no matter how it turns out, is not a loss. It's a victory. The only way we lose, the only way the enemy wins, is if we picture them. We know who they are. And we stay silent because we're afraid. Let's all stand.